Um, you can see the topic. It is sexual harassment at the bar. And the questions I'm posing here are, are we too complacent about the existence and prevalence of sexual harassment at the bar? And secondly, are our processes fit for purpose when seeking to tackle it? And in terms of answering this question, and we look at the legal profession, we need to consider whether we are any different from some of the other areas that we know have suffered an abuse of power, whether it's been through harassment, sexual or otherwise, and whether or not there's something we are doing differently that means that we don't have a problem. To give you no spoilers, to give you the heads up, I say that we do have a problem. Our processes aren't fit enough to deal with it, and that's one of the reasons why this lecture has to be given, because unless we are prepared to speak openly about the problem, there is no chance that we are going to be able to grapple with it, confront it, and change culture, which is what is necessary. So let's see what we're competing with. Old story, one familiar to you, but kicked off again last month because of the surprising comment that Hillary Clinton made when she was excusing what was clearly inappropriate sexual behavior by a man in power to a junior member of his staff by saying, well, where's the deal? Because she was an adult, which somewhat rather undermines and belies the point that I can't think of any more serious breach of trust than for the President of the United States to take advantage of an intern. So not the best constructive approach from someone who's meant to be a Democrat and looking after the rights of women. What about in the United Kingdom? Is that simply an issue so far as the Americans are concerned? And of course the answer is no. Otherwise we wouldn't have headlines such as this. We wouldn't have had the working party that came out talking about the prevalence of bullying and harassment within the Westminster bubble. And I say it's a bubble, but why should it only be in those environments which has a preponderance of men and senior men, an imbalance of power and influence between those in authority and those who go to work there? Why do we think that any of that dynamic is no less relevant to the bar than it would be in Westminster? So, questions for you. Is there a problem? Is there adequate support for those that need it? Have our professional bodies got the balance right? If not, why not? and then ultimately the way forward and why it matters. So just to give you a little bit of a reality check, because there's no point giving these lectures if you're not prepared to say what has happened to you. This is me in 1986. Blue-eyed, long blonde hair, looking pretty cute, obviously. That's before the children and the years turned me into what you see before. And I was a pupil trying to make my way in a profession I knew nothing about. Um, my experiences were varied. They started off with um, name-calling and whistle-calling as I went through the clerk's room. Um, they led to situations where when I was making tea and coffee, there'd be a reason for my pupil supervisor to come into the small room to shut the door. And I knew when he was coming in for a grope because I could smell the coffee on his breath. That's why I've never drank coffee since. The smell triggers very, very unpleasant memories because that wasn't where it stopped. My requirement as a first six pupil was to follow and shadow my pupil supervisor. And so we went away. Trials weren't always in London. Immediately we go away, there's a question mark about how the accommodation is going to be afforded, because I certainly couldn't afford it. I came from a single parent background. There was no way that we understood the culture at the bar and no way we could afford uh, providing me with the funds to go to a hotel. So my pupil supervisor paid. So there we are, we rock up at a hotel. I'm 30 years younger than him. We're both at the reception table. The um, receptionist looks at me, looks at him, looks at me, hands over a key to a double room. I'd not been told he'd booked a double room. I was confronted with a situation there and then where I had to decide what to do. And in that moment to decide whether by saying no, I was potentially corrupting my future career. And I did say no, because I had the confidence of my upbringing, I had the confidence of coming for a family, where I knew that if push came to shove, if I made a telephone call, somehow someone would come and get me. So I said, I'm terribly sorry, there must be some mistake, because I'm um, working with this gentleman, and clearly we would have had double rooms. And after some embarrassing to and fro, another key was materialized, and we had separate rooms. At least I thought we did, until the next morning and the morning after that, when the door would be knocked at at 7.30 in the morning, way before we'd agreed I was going to have breakfast, 
And so I was in my underwear and underclothes. And instead of opening the door to the um, housekeeper, don't forget, I hadn't stayed in hotels. I didn't know what the routine was. And when someone knocks you open, to be greeted by the side of my pupil supervisor, who walked straight in. What do you do in that situation when someone literally, through a position of influence and power, pushes past you into your bedroom and then sits down and you're wearing your nightie? Well, the one thing you don't do is you don't run out of the room screaming, you don't run into the corridor screaming, you simply act as though you can cope. And so I did day after day after day. I left the pupillage, I left behind a 12-month pupillage because it wasn't a place where I felt I could be safe. I went to another set. I'm still cute. <laughs> so it doesn't end. This time I'm in meetings. This time I'm now in my second six, so I'm about to start being on the floor myself. I'm, I've got more of the confidence to know what I'm doing, but not to be treated with respect. So going into a conference room where the room was entirely occupied, the chairs were all taken, and being told by one industrialist that that was all fine because he had a space on his lap and spread his legs for me to sit on, I was taken aback. More taken aback, though, that my pupil supervisor and the other senior male barristers in the room didn't say anything about it and simply laughed, and I became the object of the joke when I said no. So were those experiences, and they are simply those that I'm prepared to speak about publicly, there were others, are those experiences unique to me? Was I doing something to say, hey, look, come on, come on, guys, I'm ready for this, I can take the banter? And I wasn't. I was cocky. I was giving as good as I get with the banter because I've been brought up never to be a wilting flower. Was that an indication that it was a come on? I don't think it was. I think it's because I was a young pupil in the presence of senior men who thought that, one, why not have a try? Two, if I didn't, it was always something to laugh over. So, where next? Preparation for this lecture. I put out a request via Twitter for those who were prepared to speak to me to pick up the phone, to email, and to come to talk. I was fortunate to have one of the people that was prepared to do that in the person of Bree Stevens-Hall. And she told me her story, which I have permission to share with you. She, too, was in a set of chambers. She, too, was someone coming from a state background where she had no idea about what the bar held. So culturally, it was new to her. Financially, it was a big risk. Um, she, like me, wasn't backwards in coming forwards. You know, she was a woman that had enough to say for herself. She wanted to be a barrister. This was a career she had dreamed of. This was a career she had convinced her family she was right for, out with all of their experience. And so she comes to the bar. Lots of jokes, stupid jokes, you know, banter, um, naughty jokes about tits and bums and such like, but part of a chamber's atmosphere. But it became more sinister when she was in the company of one senior member. The conversation turned to not, will you sleep with me, but when will you sleep with me? My experience wasn't unique, it appears. She, too, was at a hotel for purely work-related reasons. She, too, went to her room. But this time, there were adjoining rooms, and the door opened, and her colleague came through and asked her to sleep with him. She said no. He then went up, started massaging her shoulders, asking whether he could relax her and help her to change her mind. And like me, she describes that moment so vividly, where in that second, in those seconds, in those minutes, where she's thinking about what to say, she is asking herself, if I say no, does this mean the end of my career? The career I've longed to acquire for decades. The career I fought so hard to get. If I say no, what will he say to others that could affect my chances of progressing in my profession? And she didn't say no. She said no unequivocally. Oh, she did say no. She said, she said no unequivocally, and she coped with the aftermath. So why, we were talking on the phone, did we think this happened to us? Because clearly what I thought was a one-off, which I'd never told anyone, about my husband, then my boyfriend, and now I was exchanging this story with Bree. And we think that it was a combination of reasons. It was Chambers' culture, the banter, which can 
act to blur down boundaries and to make things acceptable once you build up that are unacceptable if the comment is first made. We think it's about physical proximity, shared rooms, which gives you a sense of both isolation and support, can be very positive, but can also be quite overpowering. We think it's knowledge of life and the bar, a really big imbalance between the junior barrister and the senior barrister, because it's not simply the fact that they are senior within their field, but they seem to know so much. Both Bree and I talked about being starstruck with the lifestyle, going to restaurants which we hadn't been accustomed to as teenagers and as young adults, going to the theatre, which we hadn't been accustomed to doing as young adults, having wine with lunch or dinner, which we hadn't been accustomed to, and then the excitement of the bar itself, because our profession is, is so deeply seductive. There is nothing more powerful than being on your feet and being able to persuade people of the argument you have. It is a huge surge of adrenaline. So we think that was a mat element. Seniority must be an issue, mustn't it, between the senior and the junior. The fact that they are in charge not only potentially of how you progress within the bar, but if it's very junior, then whether or not you get a reference, whether or not you have a recommendation to be taken on. The confidence that comes with age. Just the sheer confidence of being an older person within the profession. Compared to the newbie, he doesn't know how things work. And then income. I've just given you the two examples where there was a really stark reminder about what difference in income makes to opportunity and choice. And then this. Access to your diary, to your personal life information, including mobile phones. Not that we have mobile phones then, but, you know, that was dim and distant days. Because if you're in a position of intimacy, professional intimacy then you as a pupil will be expected to tell your pupil supervisor what your plans are, what commitments you could give to the case where you're going to be, because you need to make arrangements between you. But of course, the downside of that is that there is very little in your private life that doesn't become known to the person you are working with. And how can you shut down that information without appearing to be inappropriately rude or distant? So we think that those things probably all coalesced um, for us and as we became um, senior juniors in the profession to mean that there were experiences that we wish we hadn't had to go through. Power is effectively the last reason, isn't it? Because when you're in that situation, the person who's more senior to you, particularly if they're a pupil supervisor, has power over your movements, over your experiences, and, as I say, over your references. Looking back, this was Bree's quote, and I've included it here because I think it speaks so profoundly of why there is a problem or was a problem. From a position of agency, you can see that other members of Chambers would have wanted to help me, but at the time, I questioned whether they would. Bree, like me, never told anyone, either in that Chambers or any barrister, because they were the other. We wanted to get into the profession. We were the outsiders. We would not have told someone because we didn't know how they'd receive it. Would they believe it? Would it cause problems for us? So we didn't say. Looking back, we both feel that there were people we could have turned to if we'd had the confidence and trust in them. But we didn't for the reasons we've said. So that was 1986 for both of us. We're both at the same call. Can we say that's a historical problem? So let's move on to 2006, a significant year, because as I, you can see here on the slide, that was when the phrase Me Too was coined by Tarana Burke as part of a and campaign of empowerment. That was gone over in the States. By this stage, I'd taken silk, which is me grinning madly, because I'm very happy that I have taken silk. Did that mean that having taken silk, I was now therefore immune from sexual innu innuendos and t'other? No, it does not. I was in the High Court. I was cross-examining a man who, over the course of the 30 years previously, had had a cuckoo life, moving from one family to the other, but seriously and horrifically abusing each child within the household. Each time the police or the social service got near, he left, he moved on to another family. My job was to pull together the threads of all of those children's abuse and lives and to find the matching details to try to explain that the one link in all of their experiences was this one man. I annihilated him over the course of three hours. It was the first time his history of abusing children had been brought into his life in the courtroom, in the witness box. It was a hot day. 
we all were given permission to take our jackets off. The conclusion of the morning was such that he refused to come back into court in the afternoon. I had done my job. I had earned my stripes. I was a silk. I had made a difference. What I didn't expect to hear from the bench was a comment by the judge upon being told that the gentleman was not returning to say, well, if he's had the same view as I have, Miss Delahunty, I can see why it would have been a slightly distracting exercise this morning. No one in the courtroom said anything. We all brushed it aside. We laughed. It should never have been said. So that was 2006. Let's move on, 2017. So we've now got the Me Too movement, haven't we? Which is kick-starting an awareness that there is the potential for abuse of power when you place someone in a position of responsibility and authority in the direct presence of someone who has neither of those things and where it is difficult to pull senior and junior apart. And it led to the behind-the-gown movement here in the uh, United Kingdom. And I spoke at its inaugural launch on May, I think it was, 2018. And it was a full hall. It was a deeply inspiring evening to be part of because the number of men and women, this is not simply an issue that affects women, we're predominantly so, were talking about how they had experienced an imbalance of power, including judicial bullying, harassment within chambers. I was there because I had witnessed and had intervened and had been told about instances of judicial bullying, which seemed to me on a par with the most senior level of responsibility with those most junior. That's why I went to go and speak at it. I really hadn't dealt with any of the material I'd talked to you about because I thought that was a thing of the past. And why did I think it was a thing of the past? It's because as I grew older, as my looks started to fade, I blame at least one of my children here who's sitting with that. As I became more confident, as I became more authoritative, then I did not become the target of unwelcome comments. If I had been, there's no way that would have been left with a silent response as my previous experience would have been. I'd have dealt with it. I'd have called it out. And so those combination of factors meant that I really wasn't aware that what I thought was a historical issue was still something that was affecting those who wished to come to our profession. It wasn't within my knowledge. And that's why I'm giving this talk. Because as a result of participating in that meeting, I did start to receive stories from the women that attended and from men that were there, telling me about their experiences. I hadn't asked for them, but once you put yourself out onto this platform and you're prepared to talk about it, you then single yourself as someone who is willing to listen. And it shows that there is a hunger out there in our profession to talk to people they feel they can trust. Because I did not invite those confidences. They were given to me unbidden. And all came with the words, I haven't told anyone this before, but. That's why this lecture was put on the agenda last year. Because the sequence of telephone calls and emails have become more oppressive and difficult to ignore. And when I looked to see what I could do about it, I was left with too few options. So, is it a problem that simply is coming to me because I appear to attract confidences? Is it simply I'm seeing something that isn't there but inviting confidences that might be inaccurate or blown up? Well, if we look to see what degree of complaint there is um, in the profession, a Freedom of Information Act request was made in 2018 by Behind the Gown. Um, of Bar Standards Boards, which is our regulatory authority for disciplinary actions. They asked about the number of complaints that have been received in respect of sexual harassment. This was a BSB response. Over the past five years, we've received two complaints of sexual harassment or inappropriate behaviour towards female barristers by male barristers. Of these complaints, one was proved at a disciplinary tribunal and the other was proved at tribunal but overturned by the High Court on appeal. It will be inappropriate for us to comment about any ongoing complaints. Is that really true? Well, 
talking and speaking to Elizabeth, who was one of the women who was behind the Baham gown launch and creation, she had this to say, and it's there because I think it really goes to the heart of the matter. It's very difficult for individuals to raise their concerns at the bar due to a culture of patronage. Of course, it's almost impossible to call out individuals who you rely on from work when they behave inappropriately or bully you. While we're all, in theory, equal members of chambers, the bar hierarchy does not help. So, was I experiencing, in 1986, along with Bree, um, aberrant, aberrant behaviour by a member of the bar? Was I experiencing behaviour in 2006 that was um, simply an isolated instance? Is it just us? Female pupil, male supervisor, nice, friendly, divorced, lots of naughty jokes, the sort of tits and bums ones I've mentioned. He wanted my company in the evening. If working, I shouldn't be doing that. If going out, I shouldn't be doing that. Can you see the control already, particularly because of the access to the right to have the information, because it might affect what work she is doing for him the next day. Text at 11 p.m. I'm outside your home made me come in at 7.30 a.m. for no reason. Come to a gin tasting with me. It'll be fun, one-to-one, -one, a way for us to get to know one another. He wouldn't let it go until he had literally got her diary between the two of them fixing a date. Reluctantly, she said yes. She panicked. She went to see what she could do about it. She pulled in others in chambers, without necessarily confiding in them why, in order to make sure she has security in numbers. He was not pleased. He tried to arrange another date. She contacted the bar helpline, who advised them to report it to the head of the chambers. They were appalled by his behavior. But what happened? I couldn't report it. He was well-respected, he was liked. What if he denied it? I downloaded loads of texts in case, but I kept quiet, I kept my head down. The moment I got on, I made sure I went into the pupillage committee and blocked it every time a pupil was to be allocated to him. When that became obvious, I went to the head and chambers and told him why. Not for me, but for others. That's an account some 10 years old. So again, I asked the question, is it just isolated experiences or is this something that's now being encountered um, through pupils we have here who've now become junior barristers? And the answer is no. And I'm very grateful to Elizabeth for sharing her story with me and her year as a pupil. At Woolwich Crown Court, the prosecutor in a multi-banded armed robbery trial was making tasteless jokes in the robing room. He referred to her as the bird in the back whilst trying to get the attention of one of the defence barristers. He was clearly making derogatory and dismissive comments about women, and when Elizabeth, as a pupil, said that that appeared to be rather sexist and inappropriate, she was the one that was reprimanded for raising the issue, not the other barrister. A Wolverhampton Crown Court in a roaming room, a significantly older man who had never met before told me that I had a great pair of legs. What is a professional meant to do in those situations? So as she says, a lot comes down, there we go, a lot comes down um, to tone of voice or a letterous look that accompanies an ambiguous comment which is difficult to convey. I worry about pupils and juniors at my level as the power imbalance is so stark that no one feels able to say anything, let alone complain. It is depressing. Elizabeth's in her second year now as an established practitioner, and she is now trying to make changes. She and I were talking about where do you draw the line in discussions with pupils? So, for example, fancy a bite to eat? What can be wrong with that? I can drop you home? Well, that could be really helpful. Why would you say no to a lift? What about, are you alone? What about, can I come in? When does the helpful, constructive comment tip into the inappropriate? So let's see what situation our young barristers face now. Consider this, an application from mini pupillage in the last two years. Um, writes in um, with a CV. 12.30 a.m., a WhatsApp message appears. Didn't realize we were in the same area. So just pausing there, in order for that WhatsApp message to become coming through, someone would have accessed that CV, chosen to extract from it a telephone number, contact this particular person through WhatsApp, 
and then at 12.30 a.m. decide to send a text. We didn't realize we are in the same area. It could have been really helpful. It could just have been a nice thing. Oh, nice to know you're thinking of joining us. But that is not appropriate, is it? She Googled the name attached to the WhatsApp message, and the Chambers website showed up. She withdrew her application. I wanted to apply to that set for a long time, but it held me back from applying for a pupillage with them when I got to that stage. Is that really what we are expected to have our young, aspiring pupils put up with, that they don't go to a set they want to because of the conduct of one particular person? What about this example? Bar school, seeking a pupillage, February 2018. So I've been talking to you up until the last three anecdotes about something I thought was historical, but this is not. It is happening now, it happened this year. A pupillage application through Gateway, which is CV only. And then through that CV, a private message contacting her through LinkedIn, which had not been put down on the CV. I wondered if you wanted to meet up to discuss. He said he was on the interviewing panel. As the person has said to me, well, I wasn't quite sure that that was the right thing to do, but I was applying for a pupillage. I had gone through the right channels. I did sort of assume the thing that would happen would be I'd be interviewed by the panel rather than receiving an individual message. But what do I do? She spoke to her friends. She didn't want to appear rude. It LinkedIn is a professional network. She accepted the invitation, but she didn't reply to the message. Hello. I can see you've read my message. He viewed her profile every day for two weeks. It stopped for a while, and then it restarted. She was scared to block him because he's a senior man at the bar. She didn't get an interview. What questions is she having in her mind? Would it have made a difference if I'd have said yes? He was still viewing my profile after I'd been rejected. They ended a few months ago. It's not acceptable, is it? And that person hadn't told anyone, not until this subject came up and a relationship of trust had developed, nothing to do with this lecture, but because of various amounts of outreach work I do. That's how that story came to me. It hadn't been told to anyone other than friends before. That person doesn't feel comfortable going to the confidential helpline because she simply doesn't know whether that system can be trusted. She doesn't know whether she's going to see this man in any social situation or professional situation again because it's the bar. We operate within small areas. So I've given you examples so far about women who've been exposed to inappropriate treatment. But it's not just women. It's a vast proportion of us, but it's not all. So I've received stories by men about men. In both instances, um, judges are making advances to members of the bar. Drinks normally involved, disinhibited behavior. And the men who told me about it said, is this what it's like for women? Is this what you have to put up with? To which the answer is yes. It doesn't make it any better, but yes, that's exactly what the issue is. So don't think simply because I'm talking about women, this is an exclusively a female issue. It is about a power imbalance, and it's about sexuality being abused. So, is there a problem? Damn right. And we need to do something about it. So, they're the experiences. Let's put it in the context of what unlawful harassment means as defined by the Equality Act. It is unwanted conduct of a sexual nature or related to a protected characteristic, the purpose or effect of violating another's dignity or creating a hostile environment. What does that mean in reality? I was trying to think about what examples I could give you to try to translate that. So, overly personal comments I thought might be included, over-familiar behaviour, continued suggestions for social activity after it's been made clear that the suggestions are unwelcome, racist, sexist, anti-LGBT or ageist jokes, offensive or intimidating comments or gestures. Remember the type of banter I was talking about, the tits and aunts comments? Insensitive jokes or pranks, staring or inappropriate suggestive looks, invading someone's personal space, inappropriate sexual advances, unwelcome physical contact, displaying, sending sexually suggestive pictures or written material. It's not rocket science, is it? But it happens and it needs to be called out and it needs to be tackled. And 
to the credit of some members of the bar, that's exactly what they are doing. I'd like to give credit to Kate Brunner QC and Rachel Goodall, who have been ahead of this issue um, and have set up and participated in the um, Western Circuit Women's Forum for a, a significant period of time now. And they deliver training to this, and they deliver training at the Bar Council just this Saturday when they were trying to give examples to those who were attending to try to make people think about the borderline between what's okay and what's not okay. So questions like, is it okay to say that a top is too low when going into court? Well, if that is going to affect the way in which you are going to be received as a professional, then why would there be something wrong in saying it? We all need guidance about that type of matter. If, however, it's the type of comment that I received when I was a silk, as I've just described, inappropriate comment. What about judge to barrister? You lower the average age by a decade and increase its level of attractiveness exponentially. I mean, really? You know. And in case um, this lecture is greeted by, by people who say, well, can a man not tell a young girl that she's got a gorgeous pair of legs anymore? The answer is no, you can't. <laughs> right? Big deal. And if in doubt, there's this test, okay? Anne Clark's The Rock Test, a hack for men who don't want to be accused of sexual harassment in simply two easy images. Please listen and learn. And thank you to Sam Mercer of the Bar Council for making me laugh on a grim day and sending it to me. So, lovely young woman, professional work mode, on the phone, talking. Do you say to the young woman, oh, you've got a lovely pair of eyes there. They flutter so beautifully. Do you say to that young woman, well, it's nice to know that you're so sunny and cheery on such a, such a miserable morning. What's made your life so happy? Did you do something last night? Would you say those comments to The Rock? <laughs> right. If you wouldn't make those comments to The Rock, you don't say them to nice, attractive young women. So if in doubt about whether you pay a compliment or not, think of the person in front of you as The Rock. Think of her as Dwayne, and then have a little think about what you'd actually do, okay? Seemed an easy tip. Bullying, as defined by the Bar Standards Council guidance, is offensive, intimidating, malicious, or insulting behaviour involving the misuse of power. It can make a person feel vulnerable, upset, humiliated, undermined, or threatened. It doesn't necessarily have to be intended to have that effect, but if it does, then it can fall within that definition. So when we're thinking about harassment and bullying, where does that have a place at the bar? I've given you anecdotal accounts. As it was pointed out to me when I was talking about them, in the space of the last month when I put a request out on Twitter, I've had no less than 10 graphic accounts. How can it therefore be that if in one month I receive 10 accounts, the BSB have had only two complaints over five years? I'll come on to the reason why in a moment. So, statistics. The International Bar Association um, has undertaken a huge amount of work in this area, and I would like to thank Kieran in particular for assisting me and talking me through the work that they have done. It is really important and needs to be taken seriously. The details are in the handout that you'll receive at the end of this lecture. As a result of a global survey on bullying and sexual harassment, um, the conclusion was the results both globally and specific to the UK are concerning. Overall, bullying and sexual harassment is a pervasive and complex issue in the British legal workplace. And what was it they looked at to come to that conclusion? Let's see. You see the headings there. Bullying, prevalence, over half, 56% said that they had experienced it. Sexual harassment, 38% of women, 6% of men. How many of them reported that? 54% didn't report. Routinely never reported sexual harassment. Why? Fear of repercussions, 71, 89%. The profile of the perpetrator, remember what I said about seniority and influence? Because the bullying was endemic in the workplace, why would they be any different? What would change? A lack of confidence in the protocols and the reporting procedures. Look at that consequence. 53% of bullied barristers are considering leaving the workplace. 71% of reported instances, the perpetrator wasn't sanctioned. Why would they have confidence in it? 
40% harassed respondents and expressed an intention to leave their workplace. Over a quarter are considering leaving the profession altogether. That is the consequence of this behaviour going unchallenged. We use the brightest and the best, and that is simply not acceptable. That was one survey, an exhaustive one. The details, as I say, are in the handout. Is it the only one we have? No, we don't. The Bar Council has taken this very seriously. There was a working life survey conducted in 2017, which has generated three reports and analysis since. The most recent one is entitled Barristers' Experiences of Harassment and Bullying and Discrimination. 18% of those in criminal practice report personal experience of harassment or bullying when compared to 8% of commercial and chancery barristers. There is a difference in our experiences. We don't become like this because we are barristers. There is a difference in the way people behave in different sectors of our profession. That is extraordinary. 47% of those who reported personal experience of harassment or bullying and discriminated cited another barrister as, as responsible. Not clerks, not clients. 47%. And what's the consequence of those two figures? Andrew Walker, QC, our chair. Robin Allen, QC, chair of equality and diversity, had this to say. And this is the message which needs to be shouted out loudly and clearly to everyone who has an interest in this subject. The results are a cause for concern. As a profession, we must do better. We do not and will not tolerate harassment, bullying, or discrimination at the bar. It must be called out. It is unacceptable. The significance of the data I just showed you is that we can no longer say at the bar that this is not a problem we have to grapple with. The fact that the majority of the complainants were about a barrister to a barrister shows that it is prevalent within our industry and it has to be stamped out. So why is it, therefore, that we're simply not learning enough about it in order to make and achieve change? Back to Elizabeth again. It's very difficult for individuals to raise their concerns at the bar due to a culture of patronage as I've said, it's impossible to call out individuals we rely upon for work. Now, I've already given you that quote, but now you've seen examples, you might understand why she was absolutely spot on. This is, she went on to say this, I think that the isolation and lack of support networks contribute to this, and importantly, we don't have human resources department, so there's a real lack of HR expertise and process in chambers. And that's really important. If there is a corporate structure and policy about reporting harassment. It normally comes with a set of processes that follow almost automatically after the problem is raised. So you would expect the alleged harasser and victim to be separated immediately. You would expect the person who'd been subjected to the treatment to be reassured that their training and their job would in no way be impacted upon by the fact they made a complaint and they were going to be separated. You'd have an HR team there that knew what to do and how to do it and there will be follow-up and there will be reporting. Policies work, practices work in the corporate field, but we are a collection of individuals called barristers who are self-employed, who band together in a set of chambers, and we operate in an environment that is not corporate. We operate in an environment which is based on trust, which doesn't have that type of system that enables you to say, if there's a problem, we can deal with it in this way without compromising you. There aren't the resources there for reasons I'll explain. But what happens, therefore, to you as a young member of the bar when you encounter this in problem? Who is there to help? If you're the victim, you will contact the Bar Council's Ethical Inquiry Service, and that will be confidential. The person you're speaking to will be exempt from the requirement to report serious misconduct, although they'll encourage you to report it if they think it's serious. What about other barristers or heads of chambers? Because it's scary picking up the phone to someone you don't know. It seems really formal, and I recognize that. So it's likely to be, if you tell anyone, it's going to be someone you forged a relationship with and you sussed out you think they're going to be a listening ear. So you want to talk to other barristers and heads of chambers? Did you know that if you do that, then they are under a duty to report to the BSB any acts of serious misconduct that you draw to their attention? That's a mandatory duty. So there are all of these agencies out there wanting to help. The FLBA, the INS, Chambers, Temple Forums, Women and Criminal Law, the Bar Council, etc., etc. But there is a problem. 
if they are not people you can talk to in confidence. Because if you describe something to them that amounts to serious misconduct and you have reasonable cause to believe that that is true, then your responsibility to automatically refer it to the BSB kicks in. Maybe that's why they've only had two reports. Because why would you want to take that step if it would shut down the opportunity to have a conversation by the person that's experiencing that harassment? Why would you breach their trust by reporting something they didn't want to report themselves? So I think this is a significant block to us doing it. I understand why it's there. I think it recognises by the Bar Council that this is, sorry, by the BSB, that this is something that needs to be recognised and called out. I think the aims are laudable, but the impact is not acceptable because from those I've talked to, it is a serious burden and a serious disbenefit in terms of accessing this area. So, as I've said, if you have a conversation and you're not on an exempt list because you're not on the Bar Council Ethics Board, you have a duty to report the alleged perpetrator for serious misconduct. If you choose not to, you have to report yourself to the BSB for non-compliance with the reporting duty. So, two years. Uh, sorry, five years, two complaints. There has been challenge to that automatic report restriction, and this was a response that we received earlier this year by Baroness Blackstone, saying, we understand that the rules might sometimes deter people from reporting cases, and so they've started to make plans effectively to introduce a trial waiver scheme. Notice here what they're also contemplating doing, i.e. in the future, changing the burden of proof from beyond reasonable doubt to the civil standard. Again, another reason potentially why there's so little take up of the reporting restrictions, sorry, the reporting duty. So there will now be a waiver, a trial scheme that's coming in, whereby certain schemes can apply to be exempt from the reporting restrictions, such as the Western Circuit Women's Forum, so that they can offer um, support and guidance to women and men that choose to contact them. But they're doing it to provide a reverse and evidence base. And effectively, unless they say there's sufficient take-up of the scheme in the next six months and the details of it show that there's an unmet need, and unless they say that that happens in six months, they might extend it to 12 months, to look to see if it needs to change. Well, I think the evidence is there already. It must change, and it should change, and everyone pretty much thinks it is an inhibitor. So what do we do now? We are in limbo. The BSB aren't persuaded that the mandatory reporting is a burden. The waiver is a test scheme. We're talking a year review. We're talking about what happens then, when actually the real issue is what do we do now? And why is it important? It is important. This lecture is important, not because it's seeking to paint the bar as a place not to come to. You should come to the bar. We welcome you. We need diversity. We need people with different experiences. We need BAME candidates. We need to make the bar reflect the society we seek to serve. And it's because I think the bar is one of the best professions you can work in. It's because we have got so much to offer. It is because we do things so well that we can afford to be honest about those things we don't do so well. Because when we tackle them, we make the bar a better profession for everyone and a better service we can provide. The bar is not a toxic environment, but it has some people in it that make it so for individuals. They're the ones we need to change. It is not tolerable. It cannot be tolerated. We have a duty to act and intervene. So what do I suggest you do? I think when a concern is raised with you, you behave and respond civilly to the person that's entrusting you with your story, their story. You respond promptly. Promptly is a significant word. You listen and discuss. You discuss what's happened, but you discuss the alternatives. What does the person want to happen? In the main, most people aren't asking you to do anything. In the main, they want to tell you something because they want to know it's not just them. In the main, they want to know what, what to do to change the situation. It is rare they're actually asking you to come in to make a change for them, but you are confident to be spoken to to reassure them the fault is not theirs. You must, of course, talk about the BSB reporting requirements, and you agree a way forward. In reality, we all look at the duty for mandatory requirement with a degree of caution and care. The Bar Council does not believe that you are inevitably under a duty to make a report straight away. 
As they say, much will depend on the nature and circumstances of the misconduct. So you take into account the seriousness of the misconduct, the impact on the clients, the impact on the person, on public confidence in the workplace, the risk to the public interest, the risk of repetition. The history, if there's been any similar um, experiences, the degree of intention involved. And so if the Bar Council, our own body, says that they would not automatically refer a matter to the BSB, what message is that sending about the significance of that mandatory reporting requirement? Because in reality, it's being ignored. And what's the point of having a rule there in principle if in practice it's ignored because it's not fulfilling the purpose it serves? So, moving forward, basic steps. I think that there are things that we can do now in our profession to make sure that this is a situation that doesn't continue unchallenged in the future. I think we can go to bar school. We can go to bar school and give workshops or talks telling the aspiring pupils what the risk is that they might be subjected to inappropriate treatment or harassment, whether it's bullying or t'other, simply to put the issue on their radar. Because if you pre-warn someone that it's a risk, they are less likely to be taken aback when it happens, more able to deal with it, less likely to think it's just me, and more likely to go to the sources of the support there are. But you need to start that early because as I've just demonstrated to you, the, report, the reports I've given them in the course of the last year came from an aspiring pupil. They weren't even in a chambers. So we need to start the process much earlier than we are doing. The message needs to be reinforced by chambers when people become pupils and by the inns that they join. That's happening. It can be improved and increased, but it's there because the inns certainly recognize they've got a duty to educate and to support. It's simple things like handing a card over when you're at court to junior members, as um, one of my colleagues, Georgie Wolf, does, and she has done for a number of years, to say the bar can be a really tough place, and sometimes you might not know where to go, but call me. I can be there. I can pick up the phone or email me. And she's received replies years after handing those cards out, as have I. A simple thing of saying... The someone like me is out here to listen, can make a difference to someone, not at the time, but in the years to come. And something we can all do as professionals and should do. It's a really basic form of mentoring. It's pretty episodic. But mentoring is the obvious stage, isn't it? A chance to talk to people like myself. A chance to talk to senior members of the profession like Patoon Sapnara here. A judge I'm flattered and honoured to know and I'm very pleased she's here. And she's here because she understands this is a significant issue. We are both concerned about whether or not there's a disproportionate impact upon young BAME candidates, young BAME women. Because if we're looking about the type of behaviour which is targeted upon those who are less likely to understand how the bar operates, it used to be working class, like myself, like Bree, who coming to the bar didn't know how it operated, but we were predominantly white. There were very, very few non-white candidates around at the bar. So do you go to the easiest source and targets? What now? Now it's not simply class that divides you, it's a question of colour and religion. So have we conducted enough research to know whether it's a disproportionate impact upon those who aren't white, those who are women or men? I don't know, but I think that it's something that needs to be done, and unless we're honest about it, we won't know, will we? I think we need to call it out as an issue. We need to openly acknowledge that it is happening. Despite the good work of the Bar Council and of the IBA, this is the first lecture, to my knowledge, that's been given to the public saying this is a problem, we need, we need to deal with it. So, effectively, three reasons I gave this lecture and thought it would be of interest, and if not, a matter of public record, which is, I hope this lecture and the fact that I'm giving it as a senior silk sends out the clear message to our junior members that harassment in any form is not acceptable. It is not you. It is them. It cannot be tolerated, and there are people that stand behind you in order to call it out. Number two, it's something where it's not just individuals like me. You've got to know that the Bar Council is behind you. In the handout that you'll get, you'll see the huge amount of work that the Bar Council have done in trying to detect and deal with this issue. They are behind you. They have created some incredible schemes 
that will be coming forward onto the pipeline over the course of the next year or so because they recognise there's got to be a shift in the way we deal, confront and manage this behaviours. The Bar Council has got your back. Thirdly, you need to be reassured, I believe, that there is a group of senior men and women who want to step in to assist and to gain your confidence so you're able to talk about the experiences you've had because none of you should go through this alone. It is not new to our profession. It cannot be tolerated any longer. It must change. So what can we do? I've talked about handing the cards out. I've talked about bar school. But my issue is that's targeting the potential victims when actually we should stop it happening in the first place. So I think we need to hold a mirror up to our profession to make sure that behaviours are called out by those that witness it and those that hear it. Don't turn a blind eye to it because it's not comfortable with your colleague to talk about it. If you know there's a problem with a particular member of Chambers, you don't necessarily have to confront them directly if you're not sure whether the wires are wherefores. But what you can do is call in targeted training um, to your um, workplace, whereby, without naming names, you hold a mirror up to that behaviour in the hope that that person will recognise it. In the main, the type of behaviour we're talking about isn't extreme, such as those examples I've given you. It's likely to be inappropriate comments, a man looking down your cleavage as opposed to your eyes or your face, making stupid comments, like I say, the jokes. We are talking about a range of inappropriate behaviours, so don't leap immediately to the concept that there's a rape, uh, potential rapist you know, hovering around outside the chamber's corridor. That would be... Um, an extreme and uh, act that is not likely to happen. Inappropriate comments are, so let's make sure that they're dealt with and confronted because people do want to change, and if they don't want to change, they should be embarrassed into changing. Basically this, don't stand back, because silence, in my view, makes you complicit in the problem. I'd like to give some thanks to the people who've helped me constructing this lecture. It's been a long time in the creation. You can see those names now. If I missed anyone out, then I apologise. I am hugely grateful for the support I've been given in putting this together. But most importantly, I'd like to thank those people who have trusted me with their stories and given me permission to share them. I have not recorded anyone's details in this lecture that has not had the opportunity of knowing what I'm saying, saying that I'm allowed to say it, and giving me permission to do so. So I'd like to say thank you to them. And then lastly, when you get the handout, there's going to be a list of contacts and resources provided to you, including the Confidential Bar Council helpline 02076111320. Please use it. I have a great deal of confidence in that line and the people that operate it. I've used it in order to try to guide people towards them. I know you can ring up. You can remain anonymous. You don't need to tell, say the name of the person you are speaking about. You don't need to give your own name. You don't need to name the chambers. Do so. It's important we report this. And they are there in order to help. But that's the message. Sexual harassment is not okay. It's not you. You're not alone. You're valued. You stick with us. Because we need you. Thank you very much.